Tonight I'd like to talk about <clears throat> the first noble truth. To explore it in terms of its role as a part of the path of practice. The path leading to a greater ease of heart and mind. The path leading to peace. Suffering, the truth of it, plays, as you know, no doubt, such a central role in the Buddha's teachings. One of the most basic, simplest definitions of the Buddha's teachings is the oft-quoted line, I teach one thing, and one thing only, suffering and the end of suffering. So I think it's likely that we're all aware that this first noble truth acknowledges that suffering is a part of our experience as human beings in this world. But what exactly does this mean? Next door at the retreat center, uh, part of what I do there is facilitate a Dharma discussion group that meets every couple of weeks. And one of our, at one of our recent meetings, we were talking about suffering. And I was kind of surprised that a couple of people in the meeting said that they didn't experience suffering. And as we talked about this, it became clear that for them, they were defining or thinking about suffering in terms of very intense suffering the kinds of atrocities uh, that we see on the evening news all too often, like genocide and starvation, really severe kinds of suffering. <clears throat> In the Buddhist sense, suffering doesn't necessarily mean those most dire of circumstances. It can also mean just the dissatisfaction, discontent, disappointment, or simply unhappiness that we experience in our lives. And there's an important difference between these states and the actual experience of pain, for example. In a way, these states are the secondary or the optional suffering that's all too often added to painful experience or unpleasant experience. The good news is that they are optional. But they have to be known. What makes the truth of suffering a noble truth is that it can be used as an avenue into a deeper understanding. When we pay attention to our suffering, reflect on it, asking, what is it? How do I suffer? Why do I suffer? It's a contemplation with tremendous potential. So the emphasis of this talk tonight is about cultivating a skillful relationship to suffering because it's in our relationship to what's happening that we have some choice. 
that essentially we can have the power to make a change. The word dukkha that we translate as suffering has an interesting meaning etymologically. The root ka means the hub of a wheel. Du means bad. So dukkha means a wheel that's off-center or a wheel out of kilter. As someone who enjoys riding a bicycle, I kind of liked this uh, image, this idea. When I thought about what it's like to ride with a funky wheel, it's so much harder. Even just having the air in the tire low or the spokes not quite trued, not quite tightened properly. You have to work so much harder to get where you're going and it isn't necessarily a smooth ride. But a properly balanced wheel with the air pressure filled to the right degree makes for a much easier ride so that even the long, potentially daunting uphills are more manageable because one's energy isn't spent compensating for those uh, imbalances or misalignments. We will experience pain in this life. It's a part of the human condition. The pain of being born, of illness, of aging, the pain of death. This is inevitable. I was homesick with the flu like so many other people around here recently. And it wasn't pleasant. So because I was thinking about this talk during that time, I really tried to pay attention to see when all the various symptoms of the flu shifted from painful and unpleasant to suffering. And clearly it had to do with how I was able or actually unable to be with those symptoms, those unpleasant sensations. It's so important to tune in to that out-of-balance wheel. Recognizing and coming to understand dukkha in our own experience, directly, very immediately, rather than theoretically, is said to be one of three doorways to liberation. So this is an important area. The other two doorways being understanding in our own experience anicca, impermanence, and anatta, selflessness. So can the dukkha in our lives serve as a kind of reminder that the wheel is out of balance, that the wheel needs truing? And what does that mean for each of us? Because my practice is primarily off of the cushion in recent years, 
I'm keenly interested in how my relationship to the day-to-day, moment-to-moment experiences that I find myself engaged in can be used as practice, practice in action. And because as a part of this householder practice that I'm doing, quite often things are not to my liking due to certain just challenges of family dynamics and situations. So I'm very often asking myself how I'm suffering. Why am I suffering? And recently I saw something that's so basic, but it was actually um, very important for me. It was the realization, just the simple realization that I was suffering that really helped to start to shift things for me. I had been so focused on the externals of the situation, all the various things that I wasn't happy about, didn't like, that challenged me in some way. But at a certain point, born out of my own discomfort, I said to myself, hey, I am suffering here. And that simple acknowledgement helped me to take responsibility for what was happening, to own it in a way, to remind me that there was something I could do. Not about the actual circumstances. There really wasn't anything I could do about that, but about how I was relating to them. So just that simple reminder that I was suffering helped me to relax my resistance to what was happening, to let go of some of the aversion, and to begin to see some different ways that I could be that were much more conducive to my happiness. How do we usually relate to painful experience? Often, the first line of approach is avoidance. It's interesting to to pay attention to how much time and energy is spent on trying to avoid pain, difficulty, or just simply unpleasantness. Just take a look at how you spend your yogi day and see if there's any of that going on. I know as a yogi, I can get into very particular routines in my day. And when by chance they get disrupted, it becomes quite clear that I'm attached, that I'm holding on. So as an example, I always found on my retreats the dining room, and this is next door at the retreat center. Here the dining room is much more spacious, so I'm I'm sure none of you have this problem. But for me, I found the dining room very overstimulating. You know, suddenly all hundred people are together and focused on getting some food on their plates. And it's a lot of energy. So 
I dealt with this by almost never eating in the dining room when I was a yogi on retreat. I had certain favorite places outdoors where I would go to eat, even though at times as the seasons changed, it became pretty cold and uncomfortable out there. I had a few nooks and crannies that were my favorite spots indoors that were not in the dining room, but there were much fewer of them. So it was always a little risky because someone else might get there before I did. On the rare occasion when I did find myself without a spot, and so having to eat in the dining room, I would sit at a table near the windows. There's a wall of windows. But I could only sit on the end of the row, so I would have a person only on one side of me, not between two people. And I didn't sit on the side of the table where naturally I would be looking out the window because I would have to look past people sitting on the other side of the table to see out the window. So I would sit on that side of the table but turn my chair around so I was facing the window. Of course, that meant I didn't have a table and I'd have to balance my plate on my lap. And then I'd feel kind of stressed about whether it appeared rude to have my back to the rest of the people at the table. Did this make me happy? You know, it's a good question. It provided some certain comfort, but there was the self-consciousness and the worry. So there was just really trading one set of stressful circumstances for another in this effort to avoid what I found unpleasant. So avoidance is often the first approach. But when avoidance doesn't work and suffering inevitably arises, we often respond with resistance. A couple of months ago, I rolled over in bed in the early morning hours And suddenly, an area in my back went into a spasm that was strong enough that it made breathing painful. And this was a totally new experience for me. I had not had back trouble before that moment. And my first response was to sort of flail around in bed, trying to find a position that would make the pain go away. And I remember sort of calling out, something's wrong, something's wrong, and trying really hard to make it stop. It all happened pretty fast, but it was striking how, at first, everything in me tried to make it go away, but I couldn't. My husband made the very helpful suggestion that I try lying flat on my back. And he went to get me some ibuprofen, which is a pain pill. (laughs) So as I laid there, I suddenly remembered this friend, a woman who had been on staff at IMS and who has done a number of three-month retreats over many years, who has a chronic back condition that's so severe that the only position she can practice in is lying flat on her back. And she always had a special spot in the hall where she would lie down for her practice. 
Even then, lying down, pain was a regular part of her experience, physical pain. So just remembering her was like this uh, profound reminder that there was another approach, which was opening to it, seeing if I could calm down and be with what was happening. And it was pretty um, extraordinary, the shift that could happen. I found that I could be with it. It wasn't pleasant. It was painful. But I could relax around it, around the sensations. And in time, the ibuprofen kicked in, and that helped. But it was such a powerful moment, that realization that I was fighting the experience and creating more suffering by doing that. And then remembering that there was another option to actually open to it, to relax the resistance, to breathe into it. So we avoid, we resist. Another approach that's often employed in relationship to suffering is denial. The mind has an amazing capacity for this, and in a way, I have a great respect for it because I think often it can be even a healthy part of our natural defense mechanism. But I also think that a lot of what we do in our meditation practice is begin to see the ways that these survival strategies that we've developed over the course of our lives might no longer really be serving us. So we have to unlearn them. With denial, we often let the ways that we're suffering be underground, in a sense, unacknowledged. Because we think that that's easier than bringing them into awareness easier than actually experiencing them. Unfortunately, this can be, at certain points in our life, a kind of undermining strategy. How often do we let certain emotional disturbances simmer below the surface, pretending that everything is fine, because that seems easier than actually addressing the difficulty? Relationship is a great area for this to happen. The problem is, if things aren't fine, one day the issue can come exploding out of us when we're least expecting it, with a real lack of awareness, usually not too much skill. And finally, another of the reliably unhelpful ways that we deal with suffering, is taking it personally. Identification. Maybe it takes the shape of being the victim. Why me? Why is this happening? Or maybe there's a kind of self-blame. What's wrong with me? Surely I am some kind of flawed person that this is happening. Or maybe there's anger, righteousness, Indignation. How dare this happen to me? How could this happen to me? 
Whenever a sense of self is added to the equation, the suffering is made more acute. Without the sense of self, to whom things happen, would there even be suffering? The Chinese sage Wei Wu Wei wrote this short stanza. Why are you unhappy? Because 99.9% of everything you do is for yourself. And there isn't one. (laughs) Maybe you've heard the phrase, no self, no problem. There isn't one. It's the truth, but we humans are so good at believing that there is. It's a really compelling delusion. Avoidance, resistance, denial, identification. Recognize any of these as ways that you respond to painful experience, to suffering. Keep in mind that they are habits and that habits can be changed. So what are the components of a skillful relationship to suffering? Years ago, as I was listening to a Dharma talk next door, I can't even remember now who was giving it, I learned an acronym that I have found so helpful in my practice over these years in dealing with absolutely any difficulty that arises in my experience, and not even just difficulties. The word is RAIN. R for recognition, A for acceptance, I for interest, and N for non-identification. So that first step, recognition, rather than avoidance, rather than denial, rather than turning away, we turn towards the suffering in our lives to see it clearly. This is the function and the power, really, of mindfulness, this potential of clear seeing. Being willing to turn towards, to look at, and perhaps at times even to name the experience. Whether or not you are someone who uses mental noting as a part of your uh, sitting and walking practice, you might experiment with it when you find yourself caught up in a difficult state or emotion. I find that the very act of naming the experience helps to provide some space around it. I've often thought about this, and I figure the way it works is that mindfulness, being inherently spacious in itself, sort of infuses what we're naming, that psychic knot, with that spaciousness when we bring the mindfulness into the experience. That's difficult. But recently, I was at a conference about trauma 
and working with trauma. This conference was attended by um, therapists and Dharma teachers and some neuroscientists. And when one of the scientists described a process in the brain that put the power of mental noting in a whole new light. And I wish I had his words written down, which, needless to say, were far more precise and scientific <laughs> than mine. But essentially, what he was talking about is how feeling is the function of one part of the brain. And I think it was the amygdala. It's that part of the brain that knows or experiences the affect of things. And he was talking about how when we invite this another part of the brain, which I... <laughs> Forgive my uh, loose memory with it, but I think it was the left hemisphere of the brain to come in and name the experience. And he said this had to be in a descriptive way. So it was not explaining what was happening to ourselves, but it was describing what we were experiencing. That it had the um, effect of calming the amygdala, he had a theory that it was a kind of wiring crossover in the brain, which essentially neutralized or at least diminished the feeling. So I invite you to conduct your own scientific experiment with this. What have you got to lose? It was interesting as he was describing this, because he was describing it because one of the trainers of the workshop was describing a particular process that happened and he said oh well that's this is what's happening in the brain when that happens and as he talked about it the dharma teachers were kind of lighting up and you know sort of signaling to each other across the room mental noting that's what he's talking about <clears throat> so the first step a first step in skillfully working with what's difficult is recognition, that R of RAIN. A, the A of RAIN, is acceptance. This is the very opposite strategy to resistance. And I think it's important to talk about what acceptance means in this regard. It's not a blind or an indulgent acceptance where we could say, yeah, it's true, I'm angry, and now I'm going to throw something. You know, accepting our anger, our anger, indulging in it. It's not that. Nor does acceptance mean passivity. I'm just an angry person. That's the way it is. There's nothing I can do about it. Instead... This acceptance is really an alignment with the truth, with the way things are. Shifting out of doing battle with what's happening, acceptance allows us the possibility of opening to what's happening in order to see it more clearly, in order to understand it more deeply. Like when my back was in spasm 
At that point, when the memory of my friend reminded me that I could include the pain rather than struggling to get rid of it, which was actually making it worse, only then did I start to relax into it. This kind of acceptance is really the farthest thing from passivity. It requires and calls on us to be really present. It takes energy to shift out of that uh, tendency to not go near what's happening, to avoid painful truth. So it, it requires a certain energy to meet it and accept that this is what's happening. I find that even just remembering acceptance as a possibility and then checking to see whether or not it's there is a huge part of finding freedom from suffering. But the funny thing about acceptance is that it means we really have to accept what's happening. It's so easy to fool ourselves to think that it's acceptance, but to have some serious conditions or terms. Accepting with the underlying agenda that if I accept this, it'll make it go away faster. How often do we do that in practice? Is that really acceptance? A true, deeper acceptance is imbued with patience, with forbearance. We might begin to notice that it's possible to find a sense of calm and even ease or peace within the experience of pain, within the experience of restlessness within difficult emotions, when we're not adding the extra suffering of resisting it, fighting it. As I was thinking about this, I thought maybe in a way the word surrender more appropriately described this kind of acceptance. And I found this uh, quote from Eckhart Tolle, He says, if you cannot accept the external condition, accept the internal condition. This means do not resist the pain. Allow it to be there. Surrender to the grief, despair, fear, loneliness, or whatever form the suffering takes. Witness it. Embrace it. Then see how the miracle of surrender transmutes deep suffering into deep peace. This is your crucifixion. Let it become your resurrection and ascension. Also, With acceptance, it's important to remember that it's not a one-time deal that we accept. We really accept, and then we're done. 
We got it. It's a process. It's a practice, an exercise of accepting and accepting and accepting as a way of being, as a way of relating to what's true. This needs to be done with great respect and kindness. Not adding judgments, anger, resistance, avoidance, but also not plowing ahead forcefully into difficult experience when it might be too much to do that. Practice is so much about balance. And this means finding a skillful relationship with suffering isn't always going to look one particular way. We'll get out of balance. What does it mean to come back into balance? At times, if we're being with something that's quite challenging, difficult to be with, it might mean that finding balance means consciously backing out of it, shifting away from it, finding a place that's more neutral to let the attention come, the energetic presence come back into balance. Perhaps taking a walk outdoors, letting the natural world serve as a sort of balm. Or during a sitting, shifting the attention away from the knot, whether it's physical or mental or emotional, and maybe to something like sound, if that helps to provide a sense of spaciousness, receptivity. So we need to stay tuned in and be really respectful of this hard work of learning how to relate skillfully to suffering. The eye of rain is for interest. I think interest is one of the most useful tools in the meditator's toolbox applicable in any situation. Interest is the opposite energy to aversion. So we consciously turn toward, we draw near when there's interest, rather than pushing away or holding back. This can be kind of counterintuitive when what we're facing is our own suffering. We're hardwired to turn toward what's pleasant and away from what isn't. But interest is essential in order to begin to understand, to develop wisdom. What if as a habit, attention and interest were directed more toward our reactions than to the situation that triggers the reaction? And I've certainly seen, like I said before, that it's easy to be fixated 
on the external circumstances, the things that we see as the sources of our dissatisfaction, playing them in the mind, replaying them, until eventually, in my experience with this, I notice that that loop has no end. It isn't really leading to any kind of ease. It's more suffering. So you might try the question, the very basic question, the next time you're struggling with something in your experience. What's happening? What's happening right now? What is this? Just that question to bring in the interest as a reminder that interest, getting interested in what's happening, is actually an option, a more productive option. And then notice, does the mind respond with the stories about the conditions that are conspiring against us. What's that? Can you get interested in that? So that layer after layer, our knots, our psychic knots can unravel when we approach them with kind attention and interest rather than judgment. These first three steps of recognition of what's happening, acceptance, actively becoming interested in what's happening, those three steps lead quite naturally to the N of RAIN, the non-identification. In my experience, non-identification isn't something I can make happen. Like, oh, I think I'll turn off the self. (laughs) Wouldn't that be handy? But if I pay attention to my experience in these ways that I'm describing, that sense of identification begins to loosen quite naturally. We begin to see deeply in our own experience the causes and conditions that lead ease, the causes and conditions that lead to suffering. This being human with all of its joys and all of its sorrows is just as natural as the changing weather outdoors, just as rightful as the seasons, the opening of flowers in spring and the falling of leaves in autumn. There can be a great ease, a great peace, as we learn to loosen the contraction of self and simply let life move through us. The other morning, as I was thinking about this talk, after breakfast, I asked my husband to tell me what he knew about suffering. He was very game. I was surprised. He didn't say, that's a weird question. His um, spiritual background and training is in the teachings of Gurdjieff. And apparently, Gurdjieff, as a part of his teachings, said that suffering is a kind of food 
for our spiritual body, that we need it in order to grow as awake beings. There's a story that perhaps you've heard <clears throat> about the way Gurdjieff thought about suffering. It's short. I'll read it to you. In the spiritual community that Gurdjieff led in France, an old man lived there who was the personification of difficulty, irritable, messy, fighting with everyone, and unwilling to clean up or help at all. No one got along with him. Finally, after many frustrating months of trying to stay with the group, the old man left for Paris. Gurdjieff followed him and tried to convince him to return, but it had been too hard and the man said no. At last, Gurdjieff offered the man a very big monthly stipend if he would return. How could he refuse? When he returned, everyone was aghast and on hearing what he was being paid, while they were being charged a lot to be there, the community was up in arms. Gurdjieff called them together and after hearing the, their complaints, laughed and explained, this man is like yeast for bread. He said, without him here, you would never really learn about anger, irritability, patience, and compassion. That is why you pay me and I hire him. <clears throat> so as my husband was telling me about Gurdjieff and his teachings, he said that there's a strong emphasis on what's called conscious labor and intentional suffering. And he said this wasn't explained too much because Gurdjieff wasn't, wasn't really interested in espousing a doctrine, but that it was a major component of the teachings. And it was kind of left to the students to figure out what it meant. So as young people, many of them were young people, involved in a year-long retreat, they would go out looking for hardship, taking it on. And that he realized, my husband this is, over time that some of the older, more experienced folks must have thought they were crazy. But there is something to actively engaging in what's difficult as a means of growth. My husband said he smoked cigarettes at that time in his life, so he gave them up as a practice of intentional suffering. Now for me, I might have taken on the practice of eating only in the dining room, right in the middle of everything, you know, definitely in the middle of the table, surrounded by others, and more importantly, by all of my resistance so that I might come to know it, to see it more clearly, to understand it, to liberate myself from the hold that preferences have. <clears throat> My husband also said that there was kind of a joke in this community where he did this year-long retreat 
where they renamed intentional suffering intestinal suffering because sometimes the food wasn't quite um, what it is here, for example. That part of the way that they worked on the retreat was everyone took turns doing everything. So the retreatants ran the center, including doing all the cooking. And some people were great cooks, and others had absolutely no experience with cooking whatsoever. And they were cooking for 100, 120 people. One of my favorite stories about his retreat um, segues nicely uh, after intestinal suffering. He said that one dinner time, they were in the dining hall, 100 people, 120 people, and they started eating their dinner, and there was a grain served with the dinner, <clears throat> quite often rice, but this grain was unfamiliar, and he said it was horrible. And when I asked him, well, what was the texture like? He said, well, it was both slimy <laughs> and gritty, like there was sand in it. And people, he said there was a, an entire range of responses to this part of the dinner. Some people just uh, absolutely refused to eat it. Others bravely sort of soldiered on in their intentional <laughs> suffering practice. And, did their best with eating this um, dinner. And um, it turned out uh, that it was a young man, it was actually a 17-year-old man on this retreat fellow, and he didn't know anything about cooking and had mistakenly used the grass seed that had been <laughs> put near the kitchen door. So they all were served cooked grass seed that, that evening. <laughs> <laughs> but as I talked to him more about this idea about intentional suffering, I realized that it didn't mean, didn't so much mean creating difficulties like <laughs> cooking grass seed on purpose, which he didn't, um, but it does mean embracing the suffering that inevitably arises in life and bringing something of ourselves to it. So being intentional about it rather than just resigned or even resentful. And it was funny because as we were having this discussion the other morning, it was one of our earlier snow days where there was new snow on the ground. And as we were talking about this, our teenager who normally <clears throat> would still be sleeping at this hour was out shoveling that most recent snow from the driveway. He had phoned home the night before at 2.30 in the morning and woken his dad up needing a ride home. So Shoveling in the morning was his end of the deal that my husband negotiated with him. There could have been much more in it for him than simply 
throwing snow around out in the cold morning when he would have rather have been in bed. There could have been a sense of upholding his end of the bargain, being in good standing with his dad, maybe even a feeling of accomplishment or the satisfaction of a job well done. Unfortunately, just getting his body out there and doing it was the best that he could do, along with some anger and resentment and victimization, identification. He's not quite ready yet for intentional suffering. Intentionally opening to the suffering in our lives, learning how to include it as a part of practice is essential on this path of finding freedom from suffering. If we're unable to open to the suffering in our lives, if we're shut down to it, we're shut down to life. Opening to it, learning how to open to it, we're that much more present, that much more open to the whole of life. I realize that it's a bit strange to talk this much about suffering and not mention compassion. But I don't think it's separate from what I've been suggesting Compassion is an opening of heart in meeting painful experience, our own or others. And I think that these various approaches or tools such as recognition, acceptance, interest, and non-identification are new habits of response in the development of that openness that is compassion. I'd like to close with these words. Unfortunately, uh, it's an unknown author, so I can't say who wrote it. There is a brokenness out of which comes the unbroken, a shatteredness out of which blooms the unshatterable. There is a sorrow beyond all grief which leads to joy and a fragility out of whose depths emerges strength. There is a hollow space too vast for words, through which we pass with each loss, out of whose darkness we are sanctioned into being. There is a cry deeper than all sound, whose serrated edges cut the heart as we break open to the place inside which is unbreakable and whole.
Let's sit together for a few moments. chant the sharing of blessings. <clears throat> Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.